Good morning. According to Christianity, salvation is to life what light is to darkness, what peace is to war, what decontamination is to pollution, and if you need it, what coffee is to your morning. Uh, my wife was on call last night as a physician. She didn't sleep much last night, and uh, she was saved by a couple cups of coffee this morning. But actually, more seriously, according to Christianity, nothing is more central, nothing is more essential than the world-changing news that God in Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins. So this morning, as we continue our series entitled True Identity, where we're looking at what does it mean to really be a follower <coughs> of Jesus Christ, and what does that look like uh, to be rooted, secure, and significant in Christ instead of horizontally or the things around us, we are rooting this conversation, this series, in the fabulous little book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Today, we come to arguably one of the most famous, one of the most well-known passages on the subject of salvation anywhere in the Bible. So grab your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, there's Bibles in front of you. We'll have it up here on the screen. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Will you stand with me out of respect for God's Word as we read As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, of the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now we all feel good, right? But notice the contrast, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in, and then I just love this, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Your God is a kind God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, workmanship, the Greek word is the word we get our word poem from, poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You may be seated. Uh, one of the distinctives of Wheaton Bible Church, one of the things we work hard to make a, a distinctive uh, among others is that we are committed here as a church to tell people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And hopefully we do that in understandable and relevant, practical ways. And I say this uh, because this morning I love you too much to soften how 
countercultural and difficult these first three verses are, this first section. Here, the Apostle Paul offers a brutally honest assessment of human need apart from Christ, the human condition apart from Christ. And so I'm going to start with human need, then I'm going to go to divine grace, and then we're going to talk about divine destiny. Or in terms of salvation, we're going to look at in the first three verses what we are saved from, and how we are saved then, and what we are saved to. So we're going to start here with human need, this indictment of humanity apart from Christ. Now Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, and then he will talk about both Jews and Gentiles, but what he is describing is the universal condition of humanity, as I said, apart from Christ. And notice what he says in verse 1. He says, you were dead. You were, and he goes on and says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. He's talking about being spiritually dead, not physically dead. And he adds in verses 2 and 3, you were disobedient. So we move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually disobedient in the eyes of a holy God. And then he concludes at the end of verse 3 by telling us that we are deserving of wrath. So the humanity's condition apart from Christ, we are dead, we are disobedient, and we are doomed, deserving of wrath. Now let me just make a comment here about wrath. I don't know how it works for you, but when I'm on the interstate and somebody bolts in front of me and cuts me off, you know, there's a this river of wrath that starts to flow. When we talk about God's wrath, it is very different because God is a holy God and God's wrath is God's settled opposition uh, to evil. So what Paul is telling us here in these three verses, and by the way, these three verses are a summary of the first three chapters of the book of Romans, is that every single one of us apart from Christ is as spiritually unresponsive to God as a corpse is as rebellious as a defiant teenager and is as guilty as a convicted criminal before a judge who happens to be awaiting sentencing. Sentencing. In other words, the picture is not very pretty, but I want to say do not misunderstand because when we read this, we need to balance this with the reality that all of us those who know Christ and those who don't have been created in God's image. All of us have been the recipients of common grace. God gives us mind. God gives us skills. God gives us uh, uh, abilities that are just wonderful uh, that he enables us to use to build the cultural good, the common good of, of, of people around us. So the Bible teaches we are all made in God's image, all given a grace uh, to live life before God, even if we don't believe in God, we call that common grace again. So what's Paul's point? Paul's point is on in the interior, on the inside. We are tainted. Our motives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our, uh, our actions are, are like a beautiful but polluted river because humanity is polluted by sin. Now, Paul continues on this. Look what he does in verse 2. He says, you followed the ways of this world. In verse 3, 
the cravings of our flesh, and following. Now, I highlight these two words, follow, because in the Greek, it's a strong word. It means to be mastered or to be controlled. So the addict follows alcohol. Uh, she's mastered by alcohol. The addict follows porn. He's mastered by pornography. And we have to ask the question, okay, what are we mastered by? And Paul tells us here we're mastered by three things. We're mastered by the world. We're mastered by the flesh. And in between, he asserts, uh, we're mastered uh, by the devil. Now, all of these, Paul is saying, vie for the mastery of the human heart. Now, I know how countercultural this is. And I, I want to say that some of you here may not like the answer Paul poses. But I want you to understand that at least Christianity has an answer for the problem of suffering and evil all around us. But the answer is sophisticated. The answer is complex. Uh, it's from the fallen world we live in, from the sinful human heart, and, 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 and from the devil. Our problems, evil comes from outside us, inside us, and above us. We talked about that in chapter 6. Now, what I want to do is I want to take this a step further, and I was zero in on uh, verse 3 and look at this one word, the flesh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Now, the flesh here doesn't refer to our physical bodies. It refers to the interior, the self-centeredness of human nature apart from Christ. It refers to our pride. After all, it was pride that led to the downfall or that mastered Satan. And it's pride, it's our self-centeredness that masters each and every one of us. Uh, someone has said uh, that human self-centeredness is sort of like this computer at the center of our souls. And this computer is always going, it's always analyzing the data around us, always looking at our circumstances, always looking at the people around us, always uh, analyzing what's going on in inside, and it's always asking the question, what's in it for me? It's self-centeredness. How are they responding to me? What can I get out of this situation? Uh, what's what's the, the good in this for me? Now, this self-centeredness, the cravings of the flesh, can turn people into terrible people. Think tyrants throughout history. Or it can make us do terrible things. Think of what the prodigal son did in breaking his father's heart. But this self-centeredness that's at the core of our cravings, can also cause us to be very moral people, doing good things, but for self-centered reasons. And this is illustrated by the Pharisees over and over in the New Testament. And so when God doesn't answer prayer, because Paul's point is this computer is always going, it's always analyzing, we're always asking the question, what's in it for me, when God doesn't answer some of our prayers or something really bad happens to us. 
We quit on God because the reason we got into Christianity wasn't for God. It was for what God would do for me, what God would do for us. So at the, at the center of these cravings is this issue of pride, this issue of self-centeredness. You have the computer, I have the computer, but I want you to understand that this is not me being kind of a narrow-minded, outrageous, out-of-touch Bible thumper, okay? So I want you to see what New York Times columnist David Brooks says about the human condition. He writes, pride is a central vice. It blinds us to our own weaknesses and misleads us into thinking we are better than we are. It makes us more certain and closed-minded than we should be. It makes it hard for us to be vulnerable before those whose love we need. Pride makes us cold-hearted and cruel. Because of pride, we try to prove we are better than those around us. And pride deludes us into thinking that we are the authors of our own lives. And now, this isn't a Bible teacher. Paul calls this the cravings of the flesh in verse 3. And my point is, apart from Jesus Christ, we are not morally neutral. We are morally enslaved. We are enslaved to our self-centeredness. We are enslaved to our pride. Over the years, I've um, I, I should have done more research on this and documented it, but over the years, I, I've noticed a pattern in marriages that fail. And that is at least one of the parties is blinded to his or her own self-centeredness. And we can't pull off healthy marriages that way. So what Paul does in these three verses is uh, pile on these three concepts of, uh, of death and disobedience and, and God's wrath to demonstrate our helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ. That's what I want you to see here. Therefore, the first step to the path of life is for you to acknowledge your hopelessness and helplessness apart from Christ. Now let me go on. Let's begin in verse 4, and we're going to kind of trace unevenly verses 4 through, oh, we'll go through a, a part of verse 9. And here we're going to move from human need to divine grace, and this is what Paul says in verse 5. I'll come back to verse 4 in a minute. What is it that God has done? God has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace, it is by grace you have been saved. This is the biblical concept of regeneration. It's God making spiritually dead people alive in Jesus Christ. It's what separates Christianity from all isms, all philosophies, all, all religions where uh, we try to huff and puff to make ourselves better or to improve our lives, to to fix our lives, to satisfy the deepest longings of, of our hearts. Uh, Christianity comes along and says, huh, it can't work. Look at the first three verses. What it requires is an external act of a gracious God that is both mystery and miracle to make you alive in Jesus Christ. Now, what's it rooted in? Now, back up to verse 4. It's rooted in God's love. Now, notice it's great love. And notice it's not just mercy. It's God 
being rich in mercy. And what has he done because of his great love, his rich mercy? He has imparted to us eternal life. He will go on and says, we've been raised up with Christ. We're we're now seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. And he has done this for people who can't make themselves alive spiritually. Often when I've spoken on this or or lectured on this, I I talk about uh, verses 1 through 3 as being one of the hard edges of the Bible or the gospel. You're, You're dead. But then we come to this, and it's the wonderful good news Uh, that in spite of our condition, there is a God of the universe who is loving and who loves because of his mercy to save people who desperately need Jesus Christ. And so Paul adds at the end of verse 5, this happens by grace, and the result is that we are saved. Now stop and think about this. Christianity is not about you becoming a nicer person. It's not about you developing a couple religious routines uh, to shave off your anger a little or or to be better about this. Uh, Christianity is about becoming a new person in Jesus Christ. A new person in Christ. And it's something that God does supernaturally according to his grace. Mystery and miracle. I love how Paul Tripp describes it in his daily devotional. Actually, uh, this is from uh, yesterday, I believe. He says, think about it. God was so sure of the depth and expansiveness of your sin, of your inability to grasp how desperate your condition is, that he was willing to harness the forces of nature, and to carefully control the events of human history so that at a certain time or point, Jesus would come to live the life that you could not live, die the death that you should have died, and rise again, conquering death. Now, why did God go to this elaborate and sacrificial extent? There is only one answer to the question. God the Father planned it, God the Son was willing to do it, and God the Holy Spirit applied this work to your heart and mine because there just was no other way. Verses 4 through 10 make no sense unless we understand verses 1 through 3. But verses 1 through 3 create a hopelessness unless we understand the pivot that takes place in verse 4 and how God has intervened in human history according to his good pleasure by his grace. Now, we're talking about divine grace, but I still haven't answered the question, well, how did this happen? How are we saved? And the answer is found, not there. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is dependence. Faith is reliance. Faith is you sitting in the chair you're sitting in. Instead of just merely believing the chair exists and standing the whole time looking at the chair, you're depending upon the chair. You're relying on the chair to hold you up. 
In the same way, biblical faith isn't just merely believing Jesus existed. He's a historical figure. He did some good things. It's trusting in Jesus, depending upon Jesus, relying upon Jesus to save you from your sins. So, grace is the root and faith is the fruit, and God tells us even our faith doesn't come from ourselves. It is a gift of God. A gift of God. So let me back up as I transition. Are you on the path of life? Have you acknowledged, do you repeatedly acknowledge your hopelessness and helplessness apart from Jesus Christ? That's the first step. But the second step is what activates the life. It's you and I receiving the gift of God's grace of Jesus Christ who died in our place for our sins by faith, by depending upon Jesus to be our Savior. Have you done that? Do you, do you live your life in dependence upon Jesus? So now I want to wrap this up, and I want to move from human need, the first three verses, and divine grace, this middle section, and I haven't really done justice to all that's there, and I want to conclude by talking about divine destiny. Your destiny is a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about your attitude, and then I want to talk about actions. So let's look at the end of verse 8 again and into verse 9. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one, no one, no one can boast. What is our divine destiny? Your destiny, follower of Jesus Christ, is to live the kind of life where you see everything as a gift from God. It's a gift. Your destiny is to not travel through life thinking, I deserve more, I deserve this, or I'm upset because I didn't get that, but to understand from the get-go, you deserve nothing. That's the first three verses. But God has given you this incredible gift, so your destiny is to live the kind of life where you understand at the core of your being that everything, everything, your salvation, and everything about you and around you is an incredible gift of God. And Paul says, so that no one will boast. Now, boasting is an interesting concept in the Bible. Let me go back to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 9. This is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. Now, what is boasting here? Boasting is the verbal expression of confidence. It's what we as sports fans do relative to our teams. Well, we're going to win the pennant this year because look at our pitching. Or man, we're going to be able to hit like crazy. Nobody's going to be able to stop us. So, so we boast but because we have confidence in our team and the pitching staff or, or whatever. And in the Bible, boasting is used both positively and negatively. Here in verse 23, it's used negatively. And here we have a descriptor of the world where today, I mean, this is centuries later, thousands of years later, uh, we boast in our wisdom, we boast in our strength, uh, we boast in our, our riches, our circumstances. 
<clears throat> now, boasting here is the fin. The shark underneath the water is our idols. What you place your confidence in for your identity. This is a series on identity. Uh, your significance, your salary, or your appearance, or your, your grades. But uh, God says, no, no, this is wrong. This is antithetical to Ephesians chapter 2. So we go on in Jeremiah, and God says, let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness. Here's kindness again, justice and righteousness on earth. <coughs> <coughs> For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. This is what it means to be a new creature in Christ. Your boasting has shifted from what you must do, from what you have circumstantially, to what Jesus Christ has done for you. That you know the God of the universe and His Son, Jesus Christ. And to the extent you understand life is a gift, you won't boast. Now, I'd like to say more, but um, I need to move on. And let me conclude with the action. And the action is found in verse 10. What is our destiny? Our, 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 our destiny, destiny is to live the life of God, to live the life of God by doing the works of God which God prepared beforehand. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared before the foundation of the world. Now, this isn't a comment about how we're saved, but what a saved person looks like. A saved person, a saved person is a person who's living a life of destiny, uh, doing good works. Now, look at how Jesus puts this in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. But it's Paul in the previous verse who tells us this is our destiny. God has prepared the good works that you are going to live out your life before the foundation of the world. Now, I can tell you that God in his sovereignty has placed you in a particular apartment, a particular neighborhood, in a particular family, with a particular circle of friends, uh, a particular uh, uh, other circles. And I can tell you that in that circle there is someone that's hurting Someone who's grieving, someone who's confused, someone who's discouraged. And one of the good works God has prepared for you beforehand is to minister to that person. I can tell you based on the authority of God's work, word that you have a calling as a believer in Jesus Christ, every bit as important as any pastor and a missionary. And God has placed you in certain circumstances, given you certain life experiences so that you can minister to the people around you, so you can lift up Christ, you can seek their good, what we call the, their, their common good. And God has sovereignly appointed those good works for you to walk in. I can tell you there's people around you that desperately need Jesus Christ, who are wondering about Jesus Christ. And God ha has before the foundation of the world, given you a faith story, uh, given you answers to prayer so you can share those, so you can walk in those good works. And to the extent that our boast is in Jesus Christ, 
We will do that. May I never boast, Paul says in Galatians, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you because as we have just read, you are the great king, the great God who is full of grace. And I want to thank you for that grace. I want to thank you for all that you give us in your son for this incredible passage. And I want to ask God that you would work in our lives to open our eyes to the wonder of your kindness and your mercy and all you have given us in your son. And I praise you and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.